functional, normal sort of pain. This is the pain that you want to be able to feel. And people get in trouble if they can't feel, right? We're starting to talk about diabetics who have diabetic neuropathy, and they don't notice that they stub their toe or that they burn their foot. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good uh, example of why it's so important. Okay, great. And then the other kind of pain that we'll, we'll talk a fair amount about today is neuropathic pain, okay? This is not pain because there's something painful happening. This is because something has been screwed up in the nervous system. There's a problem in the nervous system. There's damage to some part of the nervous system such that the person is feeling pain, okay? So that nervous system that's transmitting a painful stimulus to the brain, there's something wrong in there. So even something that's not painful can feel pain. Does that make sense? It's a problem within the nervous system itself. This is pain resulting from damage to the peripheral nervous or the central nervous system from an alteration of processing of the pain in the central nervous system. So there's something wrong with the nervous system in neuropathic pain, pathology of the nerves. Okay, so those are the two basic types of differentiation of pain that we'll um, be talking about. But when you think about pain in general and the kind of pain that your patient is feeling, it's not always this really clean kind of this is nociceptive pain, and this is neuropathic pain. You can't always classify people into these, these two separate categories cleanly, okay? And certainly someone with cancer can have plenty of nociceptive pain. They've got tissue being, you know, they've got bone being impinged upon, but they can have neuropathic pain because they've got tumor sitting on a nerve and screwing up a nerve, right? So they can have a mixed type. So although we can kind of, to a certain degree, classify types of pain into the nociceptive and the neuropathic, Know, to a certain degree we can, and we will learn a little bit later that there are certain types of medications that are better for this kind of pain versus this kind of pain. We have to remember that that clean line does not always exist in the real patient. Okay. And also, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, um, that we're also learning more and more that if this kind of pain doesn't get treated, it causes this kind of pain. Okay. And that, that's becoming, you know, just in the past five years, we started to appreciate that, that kind of, that, you know, if you don't treat this pain, what does it do? It damages the nervous system in such a way that chronic pain can develop. Which speaks to really treating people's pain acutely. Take care of it when they've got it. You know, you're not, the patient may not necessarily be uh, benefiting himself in the long run by saying, no, 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 I don't want to touch any of those opiates. You know, I'm going to go through this pain. See that patient. So anyway, just to point out, those are the two big categories, but they, they, there is a lot of mixing in patients. Um, so let me just take a step back and talk just briefly about the neurophysiology of pain. So we understand what systems I'm kind of referring to here. Uh, so we'll spend a few slides just reviewing that and then get into the different types of pain and the, and the medication treatments. Uh, and I'm not sure how much of this you've got maybe in your physiology or pathophysiology courses. So some of this may be review. But basically, you know, from the, from the, the touching of the hot flame to getting to my brain where I say this is pain, there's some, there's some steps that the, that the, the pain processing goes through. Basically, you can break it down into. The first is that nociception. That's what happens at that nociceptor. That's the transduction of something painful, painful stimulus, into turning the sensory receptor on. Okay. Something is actually turning on the nociceptor. Got a slide on that coming up in a minute to overview. Then there's the central processing. That's how this message from here, wherever the pain is happening, gets all the way through my peripheral nerve, into my spinal cord, in my central nervous system, up to my brain. 
that whole process of getting it from here to here. That's transmission, all nervous system. And then with pain, you've got this kind of, you know, funky little player in there that's called central modulation, which means there are ways that that transmission can be modulated on the way up or on the way down. And when I say modulated, it can be tuned up, made feel worse, or tuned down, make it feel, you know, less, less intense. So it's one of the few sensory systems where we've got this ability to kind of, you know, uh, control its input on our own. Probably the simplest example is something like um, uh, Lamaze uh, breathing through pregnancy, right? That kind, of, that kind of centered breathing. You know, that sort of a module, that's a true modulation of a painful event. Right? Women experience less discomfort doing a certain type of breathing techniques during labor. And so very clearly, it's still labor pain, but there's some modulation of it, right? The same thing you hear about the football player who can continue to go out and play on a broken leg you know, catch the touchdown and keep going, you know, because there's some, clearly some central modulation going on there. So pain is one of those sen sensory uh, systems that, that there's some modulation going on. Yeah? You know, I'm going to have a whole slide on that coming up. So good, yeah. I'll get carried away here before I get to the slide. But, so, um, and of these pieces, this is all nervous system, so any damage to any part of this nervous system can cause neuropathic pain. But the key thing that to take away from this is that one of the key, one of the most important things in the world that gets these nociceptors going are the products of inflammation. Okay, so that's, you know, have you guys had your lectures on inflammatory process and inflammation pathophys, right? And so you know about these pro-inflammatory cytokines and you know, how that, that some of the things that are released with the inflammatory response are things that sit on nociceptors chemokines and substance P and chem all sorts of chemical mediators, right? That's part of the inflammatory process. So probably the most common source of pain in human beings is some sort of inflammation. Okay, so to keep that in mind. You know, yes, we get cut, yes, we get burnt, yes, we get radiated, but the most common thing that causes pain in human beings is, is inflammation. Okay, so starting at that very first level, the nociceptors, these are, again, specialized sensory receptors. Okay. They respond to injurious stimuli, things that are thermal, too hot or too cold, right? Chemical, chemicals, all that inflammation, right? Those are all chemicals that are causing, that are causing a, a, pain, a nociceptor to be stimulated. Or mechanical stimuli, so something being crushed. Okay, those are the stimuli that can cause pain. And you have to get to a certain threshold with something like temperature, right? Something doesn't get painful until it reaches a certain threshold of heat or cold. So that puts the nociceptor off. And these nociceptors are, can be both somatic, they sit in the skin and muscle, and we also have them viscerally, you know, in our, in our internal organs. From those nociceptors sitting out here, we then have that second step of pain transmission. Okay, here's the transduction to the nociceptors. So I've got a couple of them down here. And just to show, let me see, do I have the circle? Peripheral transmission bone and pain transmission. I've got the A and C's. Okay, there are two separate peripheral nerve types that pain transmission enters the central nervous system. The two, the two peripheral nerves. Okay, so pain doesn't travel up these nerves. It travels up the C fibers and the A delta fibers. You may remember those from your neuroelectric. Not that important, really, that you know all these fibers, but more important that you know that there are two different pathways 
by which pain gets into the spinal cord. There are the C fibers, slow fibers, unmyelinated fibers, right? What does that tell you? Transmission's, you know, slow, it can be vague, it can be, you know, kind of an, uh, a burning, long-lasting sort of a pain. And then there's also the pain transmission that goes up the A delta fibers. Totally different kinds of fibers, right? They're fast myelinated, so people can feel the pinprick exactly where it is and very quickly. Okay, so you've kind of got these two um, systems that work together to bring tra pain transmission in. Okay, and in certain types of pain, uh, painful uh, pain pathologies, you can actually pick out which is more the problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, and C fibers, which might make sense, seem to have more involvement in neuropathic pain, right? Pain that looks burning and long-lasting. Okay, but not entirely. So I don't want to make that a rule, but. They look a little different. But that's how things get to the spinal cord, okay? So they hit this receptor, one long nerve takes them up the spinal cord, and in the spinal cord, what happens? There's a synapse, right? And then you get into your upper mode, your, your uh, central nervous system uh, sensory uh, 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 neuron, okay? Oops, and here's just a picture of the different pressure, heat, and inflammation. Forgot about this little visual. There you go. Okay, traveling up to the central, to the spinal cord. Um, it, when it goes from the up, after going through the spinal cord, you're gonna, the next thing you're going to hit is the brain stem, is the brain stem of the brain. So now we're getting up into the higher processing of pain. Okay, so first it's the brain stem. Do you recall the brain stem where is where a lot of um, uh, not only respiration, heart rate, blood pressure is controlled, but also a lot of um, autonomic stimulation occurs. You know, the beginning of kind of a flight or fright sort of thing. Okay, so very early on, you've got your 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 uh, core uh, nervous system functions: breathing, respiration, temperature, autonomic nervous system kicked right in immediately in the brainstem. It then hits the midbrain, the thalamus, which is that part of the brain where everything that's sensory comes up before it hits higher processing. Everything goes through the thalamus. Connected to the thalamus is the limbic system. Okay, limbic system is where your emotional tone occurs, okay, so the limbic system kind of gives that painful message what it means to the patient, right? So a labor pain, an expected labor pain, is not going to necessarily get the same emotional response as um, you know, being hit by a car, right? Okay, so there's, a, there's already some emotional response that feeds into the pain that you're feeling. And then finally traveling up to the parietal lobe, which is the part of the brain that can tell you it's my left arm, not my right foot. It's my finger, not my toe. You know, kind of helps you locate where the pain is. Okay. So peripheral nerve, spinal cord, the higher processing of pain. Yeah, and one of the famous kind of sayings that you see around from Alan Bestman is no brain, no pain. So if the pain stimulus never gets to the brain, it's never perceived as pain. So when you have that kind of spinal reflex, right? When you pull your finger, have you all seen that spinal arc? Where you put your finger out into a hot plane and you pull your finger back before you even know it's pain, right? Okay, that's all spinal. You, it never got to your brain. You never said, oops, pain, I'm pulling it away. You said, pull it away, oops, pain, right? All spinal there, it doesn't have to get to the brain. So if you can stop the pain transmission from getting to the brain, you don't feel it. 
why those of us who've been in labor really enjoyed an epidural. <laughs> right? Right? You know? Same sort of process. So, you know, we need that, that brain there to really turn it into a painful stimulus. Okay, so let's talk about some of that modulation. That's the question you were bringing up, which is good. So where are the places the central modulation can occur? Both in the spinal cord as things are going up and from the brain as things are going down. Okay, so on the way up, we have within, um, you know, we had, well, I talked about the A delta fibers and the A, the L, uh, the A uh, delta fibers that pain transmission went up. There are also other fibers that are going up at the same time. A alpha and A, A beta are some of those fibers. And if you stimulate these fibers, like by rubbing it, it competes with the A delta fiber and it doesn't get through. That's called the gate control theory of pain. Have you heard of that before? Okay, this idea that, you know, this may hurt, but if I rub it, I'm stimulating different, different sensory nerves that block that painful stimulation, the gate control theory. So that's a big place where we see some central modulation going on in the, central, in the spinal cord. Um, that's how it tends, those, trans, those transelectrical neurostimulating units work. Acupuncture, they think, has a, uh, has a role in this area. The other way is through those dorsal horn receptors, which are basically the receptors I talked about how um, you have your peripheral nerve coming in. It's going to synapse onto a spinal nerve. That synapse is in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So with that synapse right there, there can be some playing around with the neurotransmitters in that area such that the pain stimulus is changed. Okay? You can have maybe some more excitatory neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, in that synapse that can make the pain, the pain feel more severe. Or there could be some inhibitory neurotransmitters or neurochemicals sitting in that synapse that tune the pain down a little bit. Does that make sense? Anytime you got a synapse, you can you know, have some changes in the, in the environment there. So <laughs> things that are going on there can, can change pain, definitely. And keep an eye on these. Okay, serotonin, um, GABA, uh, some of these sound a little like antidepressant sorts of chemicals. Keep an eye on that, that's gonna come up again. And then the brain, we've already talked about some examples of how the brain can have a descending effect on, on pain transmission. Things like movies, TV, uh, music, TV, distractions. The fact that there's a good placebo effect, if you believe something's gonna make the pain feel better about the pain. Uh, systemic opiates, opioids are also something we give to affect your, the pain's still there, but you don't really care as much, right? That's about the brain. Um, and then there are also um, uh, uh, endogenous opioids that are released in the brain stem in cases of, uh, you know, we make our own endogenous opioids, right? We make our own endogenous uh, heroin and morphine. But we have neurons that make that in the brain stem, so that with certain types of injuries or certain types of settings or situations, we actually are producing our own opiates which is something they believe happens with um, people with like really severe crushing kinds of injuries that there's just kind of a flood of um, endogenous opioids. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's a, that's a good explanation of it. You know, when you've got a synapse, you've got a presynaptic neuron squirting something out for a postsynaptic neuron. And that postsynaptic neuron's talking to lots of other neurons, right? So it's talking to a glutamate neuron, and it's talking to a dopamine neuron, and it's talking to a, uh, a serotonin neuron, 
So this neuron over here is getting messages from lots of different presynaptic neurons. And based on the mix that it gets, determines whether or not it's going to fire. So if it's getting a mix that's got more glutamate in it, you know, something more excitatory, this neuron's going to be more likely to fire. If it's got a mix that's got something more inhibitory in it, like GABA, it's going to be less likely to fire. Does that make sense? That there's kind of a mix of, you know, so it kind of depends on the state of the central nervous system, how it will affect, you know, what happens at that postsynaptic neuron and whether or not that postsynaptic neuron's going to say, yep, that's pain, or nope, I don't feel anything. Yeah. Well, I have a question about the, the processing, which I realize takes place in the brain, but it would seem to me that the limbic system is highly involved because childbirth, the pain doesn't shut down, but when one is in a car accident, it shuts down immediately. And then some of the other types of pain we were talking about, as though it's, it's almost modulated by whether it's a matter of survival. In some, yes, definitely. It's one of those survival sorts of things that we need, you know. And so you you also hear about, you know, with epinephrine, people being able to pick up cars and not feel any pain doing it. So, yeah, there are these certain systems that kick in for survival, and a lot of them are at that brainstem level. That's why it hits the brainstem first. You know, if there's some really bad pain coming on, this organism needs to get ready for it in its heart rate, in its blood pressure, in its ability to modulate its own pain. So, yeah, yeah. One more, yeah. Um, are the opioids why sometimes if you have a really bad crushing injury at first, you sort of will say they don't feel it early until a while later? Yes, part of it. Now, part of it's also an adrenergic response and epinephrine and those sorts of things, but definitely, yeah. I mean, you've got your own endogenous opioid system that'll kick in, and sometimes, you know, in, in the until the organism can kind of slow down and say, okay, I think I'm okay, yeah. the pain will start to come in. Okay. Become, mm -hmm. but, if the, but if the organism needs to get out of the way, the pain may not be. Or if the organism sometimes needs to drive himself home before he can get to the x-ray machine, you know, you can get through what you gotta, but the pain is there, yeah, yeah. But, so, um, you guys have all seen visual analog scales now, right? In terms of measuring people's pain, and I just happen to like this one. But, but what this gets down to is that idea about the brain is what determines what the pain is, right? So it's a visual analog scale. It's, you can't, I can't tell you your pain is a five. You gotta tell me your pain is a five. It's what, it, what the patient feels it is. All right, and so the, we may not always think the same. Um, you know, this guy just had a colonostectomy, just like the guy in the bed next, to, you know, why is his pain up here and his down there? That's not our judgment, right? That's the patient's. Yeah. I was kind of dumb, but going back to that, if it's more excitatory neurons, it's going to make it fire more. So, what does that do to the pain? It increases the perception in that you've now got a, you've got a neuron that's firing. Yes. Okay, so, so, it's, it so makes you think this hurts like pain. Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. Yeah, it makes the pain feel worse, essentially. Yep, exactly. You've got something that's inhibitory, tune the pain down a little bit. It won't hurt quite as much. Yeah, one more. So is there an example of um, central modulation, like increasing the pain Descending, uh, go back and look at the slide. Well, this in here. Descending from the spinal cord going down? Um, is that what you're saying? No, from the brain going down. There's these types of Mod descending modulation, is that what you mean? Or descending excitation, is that what you're asking? Yeah, but those all decrease. Right, but you could, I think maybe what you're asking is that you could have anxiety, all right? So in that way, you're right, the brain, the descending modulation of the brain could make the pain feel worse. 
Is that what you're asking? Because that's a good question. Yeah, you're right. You're right. If there's something up here that's making things feel worse and anxious, that can increase it. Or smell. Anything that makes, you know, is this pain something that's okay to me? Like at labor? Or is this pain that's something that's really, you know, is not okay to me? And because maybe I'm anxious, it feels even worse. Good question. Yes. Yeah. Is the phantom limb syndrome an example of Yes. Um, it's an we'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to come to, to that. But that's a good question. And it's clearly an example of a neuropathic kind of pain, right? When you have a limb that's been amputated, what if, what's something you've spliced off? The nerve, right? So you've got a damaged nerve, so it's a neuropathic kind of pain. That's a good question. All right, we've got to get into the drugs. Um, so um, today, the lecture will be basically di divided into almost two sorts of classes of medications, the adjuvant medications, okay? And then after I talk about the adjuvants, we'll talk about the opiates, okay, that big kind of class that we all think about pain medications. But we're going to start with the adjuvants. These adjuvant medications come from different classes of medication. Okay, so there's going to be antidepressants and there's going to be neuroleptics and there's going to be um, steroids and different kinds of places, classes these drugs come from. They're not primarily indicated as, as analgesics. They usually have another indication, a substance like this, but they also have the ability to modulate pain or to decrease pain for patients, okay? Um, and they're typically prescribed for certain types of pain, migraine, neuropathic pain syndromes specifically, okay? So um, when, you're when you're dealing with neuropathic kinds of pain, more often you'll see adjuvants used. And this kind of goes along with um, kind of this, this, this is the uh, World Health Organization, their three-step analgesic ladder, which, you know, kind of would work in an ideal world and doesn't always work. But just this idea that if you're dealing with pain that is less severe, certain adjuvants can be helpful. Okay. As you get to a place where pain is more severe, you bring in the opioids. But also our increasing understanding that in types of pain that is severe, but it's neuropathic in origin, the adjuvants may also need to be utilized, okay? So there's kind of this idea that, um, that unless pain becomes extremely severe, or to the point where it's interfering with pain, we don't bring opioids in, but that is variable depending on whether or not it's a neuropathic kind of pain. Because neuropathic pain, no matter how severe, may never respond to an opiate. So, I, and we'll talk about that too as we get more into opiates. Any questions before I talk about migraines now a little bit? Because this is one of those specific types of pain. Um, migraines are actually kind of interesting. I don't know how many of you have ever had a migraine or suffered from migraines. You don't have to raise your hand, but it's not, it's not an uncommon um, uh, phenomenon, and um, people who have them know they have them. We understand that migraines are actually a neurovascular type of pain syndrome. Okay, that it's actually an involvement of both the nerves and the vessels within the brain that result in a migraine. Um, when you look at the phenomenology of a migraine headache, it, in many people, begins with what's called an aura. And these are some sort of prodromal sorts of symptoms. Sometimes it's flashing lights, sometimes it's visual field cuts, sometimes it's a certain feeling of spaciness or flightiness or unevenness. But people can frequently identify a kind of prodromal experience that happens usually within an hour of the migraine headache itself occurring. Okay, it's believed that this migraine aura is due to a wave of neuronal excitation in the gray matter that spreads from the site of origin, frequently the occipital lobe, forward throughout the brain. Okay, 
a wave of neuronal excitation. Can anything be more broad and kind of vague as that? But that's about where we are with the science of it, okay? And, but they can actually watch it spread, what is it, the rate of two to six millimeters per minute. Okay, so there's this wave of excitation that spreads across the brain and followed almost reflexively by a neuronal suppression, okay? And what occurs with this excitation and then the suppression is that you've got this area where the blood vessels open up really big and wide and then just clamp right down, okay? So there's this kind of, you know, field effect over the brain where you've got sudden dilation of the vessels and then constriction which causes the aura. The headache is bringing in the involvement of the nervous system, the trigeminal cranial nerve with the vascular system, triggering the release of certain uh, inflammatory mediators, right, like substance P, causing painful inflammation of the vessels and the dura mater. This is what's known as a neurogenic inflammation. Has that come up in your inflammation lectures? Okay, usually with in, infl inflammation, usually there's something on the outside that causes the problem. A neurogenic inflammation is kind of a weird phenomena because the nervous system induces the inflammation. It's called a neurogenic inflammation. Okay. So that's where our understanding of it is, with what happens with a migraine headache. One thing, so we're not quite sure exactly how it happens or why it happens, but it is one of these phenomena where there's an inflammatory process of the nerves and the vessels, but it's neurogenic in origin. Something happened up here with these nerves okay, that resulted in a painful inflammation of the vessels and the nerves, the trigeminal nerve. Okay. That's our best understanding of it. But we do know, one of the things we do know is that when we talk about regulating the tone of vessels, one of the uh, neurotransmitters that's very important is serotonin. So we do know that the serotonin systems are important in the, tree, in the kind of the management of how these vessels are open and closed. Okay, so we'll see that many of the agents that we use are serotonergic types of agents. Mm -hmm. See, now I don't know if I'll be able to do this. Yeah, well, you know what, I'm probably going to. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, I'm just going to go through now some of the medications that have been, um, that are evidence-based to, uh, to treat uh, migraines. And you'll see that the ones that, the, the, big, the first ones that pop right out are the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. You all know what I mean when I say NSAIDs. That was the Okay, okay, all right, well, all right, good. Okay, and that'll come up. This is, it's like a Tylenol Motrin, those anti-inflammatory medications. Because it's a neurogenic inflammatory process with migraine, these anti-inflammatories actually work pretty well to treat a migraine headache, okay, if you can catch it early enough. So um, the, the, the use of things like Tylenol with an aspirin, aspirin with caffeine, um, there are certain um, suppository formulations of, of anti-inflammatories that can be given, uh, large doses of aspirin. There are other um, you know, less, less frequently used um, Non-steroidals, but it's been shown that these can really um, diminish the effect of it. They can really diminish the severity of a migraine headache um, due to their anti-inflammatory effects. Corticosteroids, though, even though they're potent anti-inflammatories, have not been shown to um, to really provide good relief. Um, and because often uh, nausea and vomiting accompany um, migraine headaches, there are also antiemetics that are given. With respect to the serotonergic uh, agonists that are used. Um, it's, it's believed that these agonists block the development of that neurogenic inflammation by regulating the tone of the vessels. 
So that neurogenic inflammation that was going to occur, we've regulated the tone of the vessels and um, diminished the amount of, of inflammation that are given. Some of the more common types that you'll hear of are the tryptans and the ergots. Um, you just want to make sure that because these are such potent vasoconstrictors, these ones you don't want to give IV. Um, you don't want to re um, repeat administration of some of them. Contraindicated with ischemic heart disease and pregnancy, and they should not be taken within 24 hours of one another. So they're very potent vasoconstrictors, but because they can you know, uh, block the pathway leading to the neurogenic inflammation, they can decrease the severity of a migraine headache. Okay, so these are given to people with severe migraine. And if you can read this on your little slide, uh, this is kind of the uh, a stepwise treatment attack, excuse me, stepwise within attack treatment of migraine. And you can see early on with the aura that the use of some anti-inflammatories may be helpful. So people who do get migraine headaches, you know, if you give yourself a big boost of anti-inflammatory agents, as you feel the aura coming on, you can frequently uh, mitigate the, the development of a true headache. Mild headache, you still see some uh, uh, increased doses of, of uh, non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories used. As you get into more severe headaches, we see the in, um, in bringing in the use of the uh, serotonin, serotonergic agents. And um, we can talk a little bit about refractory headaches, too, I think, on the next slide. Um, for people who have migraines on a more of a chronic basis, people who have what's called significant migraine disease, meaning they get two or, two or more per month of these recurring disabling migraines and that they have not been treated well with the acute medications used on the previous slide, um, and also for certain types of, of migraines, um, such things as anti tricyclic antidepressants, anticonvulsants, beta blockers have been used. Um, and usually they're requiring lower doses than that for other indications. But Again, you're looking at ways to kind of keep the, the nervous tone of the, of, the, of the brain regulated, especially with serotonergic um, components. Questions? Yeah? Why do they use Botox sometimes then for migraines? Um, is that just like a whole different... Or is that well, no, no. I mean, if they're putting it into the trigeminal nerve... That's because the trigeminal nerve is the nerve that's really getting irritated. I don't know. Did they use Botox in migraines? Yeah. Okay. Well, that would be the mechanism. Because it's a trigeminal nerve, it's branches that are getting all dip, 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 so. There's... There's a lot of things being looked at with migraines. It's a really odd phenomenon. You can tell the way I've kind of danced around explaining it. You know, and there's a lot of hormonal regulation that's involved in it. Um, there are, um, you know, both central and peripheral components. And trigeminal is a peripheral nerve. The brain is a central nerve. So there's, it's a it's a complex kind of pain, but it's a pain that can respond to things that play with the vascular tone with respect to the uh, to the ergots and the serotonergic agents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I you know I don't know a lot about Botox Botox uh, injections. So I'm so you say the question again. You're you're asking where they inject it? No, I'm just saying. 
Well, yeah. I mean, but migraines have a pretty typical presentation. If they've gotten a halfway decent workup, a migraine headache is different than other types of headaches. So I would hope that they wouldn't go to their Botox provider before going to their nurse practitioner or their nurse to make sure that this is, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a way to treat migraine. But that's a, I'm sure that might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the medication. Mm -hmm. um, for the The, you know, the kind of the lore is, you know, you take three Motrin, three Tylenol, and three aspirin and go lay down for a half hour. Wow. You know, this kind of, it's a lot of anti-inflammatory, but, you know, it seems to be what, you know, but, but again, there aren't like great clinical trials, that's kind of clinical lore, but if you look at the things that did rate A, yeah, anything that's going to bring a good inflammatory, anti-inflammatory response can work. So. Um. But, but don't go tell your patients to do that necessarily if they have bleeding <laughs> disorders or something. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we've talked, a, we've talked a little bit about migraines, and I'm now going to move on to kind of that bigger, broader category of neuropathic pain. Okay, this is the kind of pain, again, that because, occurs because there's been damage or alteration to something in the nervous system, whether it's in the peripheral nerve, whether it's in the nerve root, you know, where it comes into the spinal cord, whether it's in the spinal cord or whether it's in the brain, which you can't really breathe there. That all leads to this perception of pain that isn't really there. It's a problem with the processing of the nervous system. Some of the cardinal signs that the pain is neuropathic tells you there's something wrong with the, with the nervous system because people will experience hyperalgesia, which means if you touch them with something that's just mildly painful, you know, a little pinprick, they feel as much more painful. Okay, they're hyperalgesic. Allodynia is an even, you know, greater example. You touch them with something that shouldn't hurt, like the cotton wisp or something, and it's painful, that's evidence of neuropathic pain, okay? So there's been a change to the nervous system. Things that shouldn't hurt much hurt a lot. Things that shouldn't hurt at all hurt. So the nervous system is transmitting faulty stimuli. That's neuropathic pain. And probably the most common types of neuropathic pain that you're going to run into in your practice uh, is post-herpatic neuralgia and then diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Okay, these are the two big categories of uh, neuropathic pain that you're going to run into clinically. <clears throat> and I'm, I know you'll hear more about these diseases if you haven't already, or these uh, 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 states of the nervous system if you haven't already. Um, but to remind you that uh, the, the herpes zoster is um, the. Um, let me go back a minute here. In terms of post-herpatic neuralgia, the most common. Um, Type of that pain is due to herpes, and you can see that it's following the vesicular rash along the dermatomes. That's how you know it's a central nervous system problem, right? Because it's following dermatomes. Extremely, extremely painful. Uh, question? Yeah, sorry, one more on migraine. <laughs> um, my mom, I gave her a Phenogen, like injection, when she has one, so she's really nauseated. What brings what on the nausea? You know, I don't know if they know for sure. I mean, anytime you've got, you know, your vomiting center is sitting in a really weird place, like at the top of your brainstem, right above your thalamus. So a lot of things can get your vomiting center going, you know. And so just like spinning around in a circle can get your vomiting center going. It seems you kind of one of these little things sitting in kind of a crucial place that makes you just want to throw up. Maybe you've had something bad to eat and you want to throw up. There's something that gets stimulated in that area that's called the vomiting center and there's a lot of different things that do it. And for one, some reason or another, migraines do it. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. But it, they are linked and you see it. 
Um, so this is one of the most, a very common, especially in your elderly patients or patients whose immune systems are suppressed. You know, a lot of us are all carrying around this little herpes virus in our central nervous system, but it doesn't get expressed unless our immune system is, is, is suppressed. And so this can be a very ex extremely painful type of uh, neuro neuropathic pain that you'll encounter. Um, and the, the adjuvant medications that are used with good success to treat neuropathic pain are the tricyclic antidepressants. Okay, these are not pain medications. Typically, we give them for depression, and they work well for depression. Things like, and the tricyclics are some of the older ones we don't give quite as often anymore for depression. Amitriptyline, imipramine, and dizipramine. Um, the mechanism of action of these has been poorly understood, but it does modulate the serotonin and norepinephrine pathways. And remember, we talked about these being neurochemicals, these being neurochemical places where modulation could take place. Okay, so we had a whole idea of central modulation it looks like that's where these antidepressants make a difference. They're doing some central modulation and tuning down the pain experience. The other hypothesis is that by treating someone's depression, their pain will feel better. So you may have somebody, because of this chronic pain, who has an underlying depression, treat the depression, their pain gets better. You know, and you look at the, what is the Cymbalta commercials now, talking about the link between depression and pain, you know, and that they may not be entirely unrelated phenomena. You know, that kind of speaks to this, this use of these medications to treat chronic pain. Um, usually start with, the, with more like bedtime doses, low to moderate doses, and, but the onset of action will be sooner than with other, you know, antidepressants can take six to eight weeks sometimes to kick in. With the, neuropath, with the treatment of neuropathic pain, two to three weeks you can sometimes see a difference. Okay. Um, looking at the uh, adverse events that go along with the different uh, uh, tricyclic antidepressants out there, and this is just giving you you know, some, some things to think about as you are considering uh, providing. These are anticholinergic effects, and depending on the agent that you provide, they have more or less of these effects on patients. Okay. Um, this is looking at um, the use of uh, some of the newer antidepressant types of mechanisms, the SNRI uh, medications to treat uh, neuropathic pain. Cymbalta is one of the ones we just mentioned. Um, and you can see that compared to placebo, let's see if I'm looking at these right now, that patients who got either the 60 or the 120 milligrams had um, over time, over weeks on steady drugs, had a decrease, increased decrease, increased decrease in pain severity. Their pain got better significantly compared to placebo. And this is for peripheral neuropathy, diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Remember, that was the number one source of diabetic pain. Uh, excuse me, of neuropathic pain. Another category of medications that can be used to treat neuropathic pain are the anticonvulsants. Okay, anticonvulsants in general, what do they do? They block calcium channels, so they block action potential. So if you want to block some pain transmission, you know, you can, you can give an anticonvulsant. And um, some of the ones that we see used more frequently, increasingly frequently, gabapentin, but these are some of the ones that have been used um, to treat uh, neuropathic pain. And they sometimes tend to be more uh, helpful in cases of lancinating pain, which is pain, trigeminal neuralgia, have you all heard of that? Which is kind of this, it just comes oh, on like that, burst of intense pain that the patient can't control, you know, out of nowhere, terrible, terrible type of pain. Um, the, the, these kinds of medications just can kind of keep the nervous system quiet enough so that they won't happen. Okay. Um, gabapentin, also known as Neurontin. In peripheral herpatic neuropathy, you can see that there were significant decreases in that pain when they were on gabapentin as opposed to placebo. Okay. And just some of the uh, 
details about Neurontin. Basically, you know, very effective, uh, reducing these side effects that uh, you would expect. Um, the, one of the issues, though, with gabapentin is its bio bioavailability was never very good. Well, it's still not very good, but so they now are looking more at pregabalin. There, um, a little bit different, and so the so basically it has the same sort of effect on pain, but the bioavailability is different. So the field is moving in that direction. And same drug, looking at it, and the two big types of neuro neuropathic pain, diabetic peripheral neuropathy and post-traumatic neuralgia. And both of those two big categories of neuropathic pain that you're seeing all the time are treated. Um, we see improvement in pain scores. And finally, another class of adjuvant medications that can be used to treat pain are antiarrhythmics. We don't use them a lot, but sometimes um, for usually more peripheral types of pain, um, there's a lidocaine patch. For post-traumatic neuralgia, you can actually put it on those areas where the rash is and decrease pain transmission. Um, also, um, there, there's a peripheral membrane stabilizer. Uh, well, what it is is a peripheral membrane stabilizer. stabilizer okay? It penetrates the nociceptors and blocks the impulses. And you need much lower blood levels than anesthetic or anarrhythmic doses so that you would not expect to see any sort of central effects of the lidocaine that's pr provided via these patches. Yeah? But, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the head-on commercials where you go head-on to this um, thing. Is that what that is? Because I don't understand you could put a stick to your head. I don't understand you, you could stick your head either. All right. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. know. Is it, I was going to say, is it like a capsaicin sort of thing? Okay, yeah. Capsaicin. Yes. Like you sit on your head and all of a sudden, you know. Right. So it's a counter-stimulatory sort of agent. And I don't know that we, I don't really cover that in this. Yeah, but capsaicin is the same sort of, yeah. Right, right, okay. Uh, here's one of those lidocaine patches, okay. Here's just some data on the efficacy of it, and you can see again that people with a fake patch didn't do as well as people with the real patch. Okay, this is again peripheral, herp uh, peripheral herpatic neuralgia, the herpes zoster we saw, okay. And then finally, sometimes muscle relaxants or antispasmodics can be given to treat pain, and these make sense. You're decreasing muscle tension. So things like Valium, uh, Roboxin, Flexeril, Liorisol, um, these alleviate muscle spasm and thus decrease pain. So if a significant component of the pain that you're seeing appears to be musculature, um, that these can be helpful, which can happen with lower back kinds of injuries, especially neck injuries. Um, so they're not really pain medications, but by relaxing muscle, they provide relief. So that's kind of the overview of the adjuvants and their use in migraine and their use in neuropathic pain, primarily post-hepatic neuralgia and peripheral diabetic neuropathy. Okay, and then I want now I want to move on to talk about the opiates a little bit more. Any questions on any of that before? Okay. I still got about an hour. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, let me start talking about the opiates. And as, um, as uh, Dr. Sokolow mentioned, um, this really is my area of, of research interest. And I um, do a lot of work in the, in the methadone clinics, working with people who are addicted to opiates and looking at their pain syndromes, um, and as well as looking at people who have pain and are given opiates and trying to figure out if they're addicts. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into um, the use of these medications for the treatment of chronic pain. But 
I'll try to stick with the pharmacology as, as much as I can. Um, I, I, we're looking back at this old step ladder we looked at a little while ago. What comes across is this idea that opiates are not not to be given unless the pain is relatively is severe. Again, moderate to severe depends on what you call. But if the patient is rating their pain as you know four or above in most institutions, that would constitute moderate to severe, and that's when you start to think start thinking about an opiate. Okay. Um, so in that, a lot of the pain that is um, you know, if you go in for a surgery, what is causing a lot of the pain? The inflammation, right? So by treating inflammation, you can often keep an inflammatory type of pain from ever getting to this place, okay? And so a lot of times we'll see compounds of a medication that's an anti-inflammatory, a Tylenol, with a little bit of an opiate stuck in because the anti-inflammatory can be very, very helpful. One of the problems with anti-inflammatories, I'm sure I'm going to get to this, is that there's a ceiling effect and you can't just keep loading people up with Motrin without expecting to have some problems. So, um, but it's important to keep that in mind that if inflammation is a big source of pain, treating the inflammation can really make a difference. Um, among the remedies which it has, been has pleased Almighty God to give to man to relieve his suffering, none is so universal and so efficacious as opium. You know, we have, as humans, we've had a magical relationship, a spiritual relationship with opium over the millennia, right? I mean, this is the ultimate drug to treat pain, you know, and to ease suffering. It's, it's one of those gifts from God is what, you know, people talk about. Um, and when you've taken care of a cancer patient at the end of life, you'll think the same thing. You know, it's really is, it's amazing that we have something in our, you know, in our tools in our toolbox that can bring this kind of relief. And, and as we mentioned a minute ago, it's also kind of cool that our brains have our own ability to produce it when needed. You know, so it's, it's a nice little compound, nice little protein, nice little peptide. It's <laughs> um, basically a ligand which binds to an opiate receptor. So anything that binds to an opiate receptor is called an opioid. Okay, so lots of di different things can bind to an opiate receptor, and there are different kinds of opiate receptors. There's the mu, mu the kappa, the delta, and then the orphanin. Okay, and the one that we talk about all the time in pain control is the mu receptor. Okay, so mu opiate agonists are what is the big class of the medications that we use to treat pain. Okay, they're an agonist of the mu receptor. Um, kappa and delta don't consistently provide any sort of analgesia, and often they have more um, uncomfortable psychic effects. So we don't tend to use those receptors to the same degree. And the orphanin, I think it's, the jury's still out. I don't know if you hear. Um, so an opiate can be endogenous, it's something we make, our own endorphins, right? Or it can be synthetic, it can be made in a lab like Demerol, um, or it can be, you know, grown in a poppy, it can come from different places, it can be an agonist or it can be an antagonist. All an opiate is is something that binds to an opioid receptor. And it's one of those bindings of something to a receptor where you're generating second messenger generated changes on the inside, right? So it doesn't just bind to the receptor and open an ion channel or close an ion channel. It binds to a receptor and sends a message down to the nucleus that changes that cell. That cell is now expressing different proteins, right? Okay, it's a second messenger kind of change to a cell. Um, and therefore, cells change after they've been exposed to opiates. And we'll see some examples of that in a minute. Okay. Um, one of the key things to keep in mind, because this is well, it's one of my pet, pet peeves, I guess, is that just because something is an opioid, it doesn't mean it's the same thing as a narcotic. Okay, narcotic is a legal term. Narcotic is the DEA's term. Narcotic is the schedule, but one to five term. Okay, that's a legal term. It's not a pharmacologic term. 
So the DEA, when they say narcotic, they're talking about cocaine and opiates and other things. Okay, so it's, and it's, it's uh, uh, frequently they're kind of co coalesces the same thing, but an opiate is not the same thing as a narcotic, if that makes sense. They're two different types of words. Um, according to Goodman and Gilman, there are three different major classes of narcotics. There are the opiate agonists, like morphine. There are opioids with mixed actions. We'll talk about those in a minute. Okay. And there are opioids, that, opioid antagonists, the so opioids that bind to the receptor and actually block any sort of activity. The ones that we use for analgesia, obviously, are going to be the ones that have some agonist activity. <coughs> you don't want to block your opiate receptors if you want to be getting pain relief, right? So these are the ones we're talking about. Uh, this is the chemical structure of morphine, and all of the opioids share. Uh, important binding groups on morphine are the phenol. I'm not a biochemist. Uh, these are the, uh, the aromatic ring and the ionized amine. These groups are found in all opiate analgesics. So these are the parts of the morphine structure that are found in all mu opioids. Okay. Opioids, it used to be thought they really only worked up here in the top part of the brain in the way that you thought about the pain, but it's found that we have opiate receptors throughout our nervous system. They're not just sitting up there. They have their mu opiate receptors in those peripheral nerves that are carrying transmission up to the spinal cord. There are mu receptors in the spinal thalamic tract, one of those central nervous system tracts going up through the spinal cord. There are mu receptors on that. Okay. There are mu receptors in the midbrain, up here in the brainstem and the thalamus. Um, um, and let me see, excitatory postsynaptic potential. Oh, the, by, okay, I think what I'm trying to say here is that by binding to these receptors in the midbrain, you induce an excitatory postsynaptic potential, you get a neuron to fire, and descending inhibitory pain pathways. So that's a fancy way of saying that descending inhibition is due to this mu receptors opiate activity in the midbrain. But the big take-home message is that you've got mu receptors throughout your nervous system. They're not just sitting in one place. Here, here, here. Opiates can have activity, okay? Um, the mechanisms of mu opioid analgesics, um, is limited to the perception of nociceptive stimuli only. Okay, you can still see light the same, you can still hear sounds the same, you can still feel touch the same. The only sensory part of the nervous system that's affected are the pain pathways. Okay. Um, there is, and, and another, I guess, gift from God is the fact that there is no ceiling effect to the opioids. That if patients become tolerant, you can keep bumping up the opioids and provide more and more pain relief. You never get to a point where you can't provide more pain relief with more opioids. You can get to a point where it's difficult to, to sit between toxicity and analgesia, but you can always get more analgesia if you bump it up. Okay. Um, it is effective for both the treatment of nociceptive, the good kind of pain, and neuropathic pain, but nociceptive pain is really the key place where we use opiate analgesics. Okay. The adjuvants look much more effective for neuropathic pain. But that's not to say if someone's neuropathic pain is severe, we don't give them opiates, okay? There's some mixing across these places. But nociceptive pain is kind of the mainstream of opiate use for nociceptive pain, post-operative pain, breaking a leg, um, those sorts of things. 
because of the receptors that opiates bind to are second messenger receptors, and therefore you've got changes inside those cells. Those cells change, that phenomenon known as neuroplasticity. The neurons are different now. One of the ways you know is because people become tolerant, right? Okay. Tolerance simply means that you need more of the same medication over time to get the same effect. Okay. So what get what dose of codeine got you to a VAS score of two three days ago? You now need twice as much codeine to get to that same score. You become tolerant to the medication. Okay. That's showing you there's been some changes to the nervous system in response to this opiate being administered. You could do either. The question is, if you see tolerance occurring, do you increase the amount of dose given or do you decrease the interval? Either way is a good way to, to approach it. You can do either. Yeah, and, but either way, they need more opioid over the same amount of time to get the same pain relief that they were getting before. Something's changed in the brain, right? Or the nervous system, excuse me. Yeah? Is there a difference between the two words, opioid and opiate? Good question. Opioid is what I used up front. It's that big... Um, a uh, term that means anything that binds to an opiate receptor is an opioid, okay? An opiate is usually a mu agonist that we give to treat pain, okay? So it's a, it's a more of a, it's a smaller class. Opioid is anything that binds to an opiate receptor, okay? An opiate is a mu agonist we give to treat pain. So one's more of a chemical title and one's more of a... Functional? Yeah, functional clinical title almost. So an opiate could be morphine, but your endogenous endorphins are not an opiate. They're an opioid. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So tolerance um, is, is evidence of that neuroplasticity that occurs. You need more medication over time. Um, it appears to be age-related. Like the younger you are, the better you can develop tolerance as opposed to being older. You know, all this, um, I like someone called it once uh, uh, cellular gymnastics. In order for cells to change, in order for these, you know, this, these changes to occur inside of a cell, it has to be able to you know, generate some changes and express some new proteins and do some gymnastics almost inside of itself. And as our cells age, we can't do those gymnastics as well, so we don't develop tolerance to the same degree. Um, we also know that the cross-tolerance is evidence, so that someone that's got some tolerance to morphine will also have some tolerance to heroin but not one-to-one -one kind of thing. It's very variable. So you always have to be very careful if you're switching someone from one opiate that you know they're tolerant to, to another. And I've got a chart coming up on some of the, to help you think about that. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Exactly. It's a good thing for young people, but it's not a good thing necessarily for old people. You know, so that they don't develop. So if you wanted to really bring up their, if you want to really increase their opiate dose because they're having a lot of pain, you've got to be a little more careful about doing it, right? Okay? Because they won't develop tolerance to the same degree. So it's a good thing and a bad thing, if you see what I'm saying. You know, it's a good thing that you can continue to give them opiates. They don't get tolerant quite as quickly, but you've got to be real careful about not giving them too much. Yeah. because you can continue to, you know, you don't have to increase their doses frequently, hopefully, 
but it's a, it can be a scary thing if you do up their dose because they don't develop tolerance quickly and you have some toxicity. So that it makes it a little trickier to, to dose them. Yeah. It's almost protective. It's a good thing we can develop a lot of time. It's a good thing the 18-year-old, you guys are 18-year-olds, right? Having the freshman in college gets some tolerance to the, you know, to the oxycontin baby. Right? So because they keep breathing. People ask, why is it good to, be, to get tolerant? Because you keep breathing. If, you, if you're not tolerant to a medication, we'll talk about the toxic effects in a minute, you stop breathing. So I'd rather someone be tolerant if I'm giving them a dose of opiates that I don't know. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think I have another slide on that point in just a minute. But I did, before we leave this idea of neuroplasticity, I also want us to remember to think about physical dependence. That people who take opiates on a regular basis become physically dependent on the opiate, right? such that if you take the opiate away, if their blood level drops, you'll see the emergence of a distinct withdrawal syndrome upon discontinuation, okay? Again, they've changed their nervous system. Before this time, their nervous system didn't care if there was an opiate around or not, okay? But by doing opiates on a, on a continuous, regular basis, and we can all argue about what that means, but that there are, is a distinct withdrawal syndrome that occurs. So there are changes to the nervous system because people become physically dependent. So good drugs, but not necessarily benign drugs. They do have an effect at cellular functioning. Pharmacokinetics of opiate analgesics. Um, the oral formulations are subject to a pretty heavy-duty first, first, pa first pass effect. So that um, switching someone as they're leaving the hospital, they may go from an, um, you know, an IV uh, administration of an opiate and go and send them home suddenly on a pill form. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to be a big jump for a lot of patients, and you need to help them understand that. Yeah? Isn't that why you have to have them on the oral for a while before you you would like to, yeah. but hospitals don't always let you do that. You know, so you want, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, you want to get them, but sometimes they'll go home on things. But, um, so just, just something to keep in mind, to watch for. Um, they are extensively bound to pl plasma protein, so people who have a high pl protein content in their blood, like pregnant women, a lot of the opiate gets bound to those proteins and they're not available to, to, the, to the receptors. Crosses the blood-brain barrier poorly. So that's a problem when you've got some sort of central kind of pain going on. It's hard to get opiates into the central nervous system, and sometimes you'll see people that have actually pumps where they can self-administer opiate into the central nervous system um, because they have a port that goes into the CNS. It's really hard to get it to cross. But again, it's maybe a protective thing. If opiates make you stop breathing, maybe we want to try and keep them away from the brain. Okay. Um, extensive metabolized by the P450s, so you've got to watch out for... Um, um, extensive metabolizers, and vary according to the half-life and duration of action. With opiates, it's almost like going to this salad bar or the sushi bar or something where you've got a bunch of different choices that you can pull from depending on how, you know, how, how, how uh, potent you want it to be, depending on how long you want it to last. You know, there's kind of a, a cornucopia almost of different kinds of opiates that can be used to treat patients based on their um, equianalgesic dose as well as, I don't know if I have the the half-life. Here we go. You know, so that there are um, different types of uh, medications that can be used, and you can see that as you get closer to um, uh, so how we read this here, that 30 milligrams of morphine is going to give you the same analgesic effect as 200 milligrams of codeine is going to give you the same analgesic effect as 300 milligrams of Demerol. So different opioids, and we have these analgesic charts that tell us just about how equivalent they are. And that's about how much analgesia you'll get from them. Just so oral versus parental. So yeah. does that mean one milligram 
of oxymorphone IV is 10 milligrams. PO. Yep, which is the same as 30 milligrams of morphine PO, which is the same as 10 milligrams of morphine IV. So there's, yes, right, exactly. More potent, and yes, some are more potent. Right, yes, yep. Well, the difference between here and here, yes, due to the first pass effect. Exactly, exactly. The difference between here and here is not due to the first pass effect. That's due to the differences in the pharmacology of the medication. Okay? But you're absolutely right. Yeah, the difference here and here is first pass. But all of these on that all of these are the same effect. Yes. But then the lower one, the one with the slower number of more potent than that. This one's more potent than that. Exactly. You only need to get four milligrams of... Uh, Lavorphenthal, or when you get four milligrams of that to get the same analgesia that you get with 300 milligrams of Demerol. Okay, so it's stronger than others. Yeah. But so, you know, you've, you've got kind of a cornucopia to choose from, and the drug companies keep putting out more and more of them, and one of the areas they're putting out more and more are in these sustained release or longer acting opioids, um, you know, where you can see that you know, may only have to give this MS cotton that they can take one or two times a day, get a nice controlled release to it, and have a better response. Mm -hmm. Those were the, the pure mu opiate agonists. These are some of the opioids with mixed actions. Tolwin, we don't use too much anymore. It's actually, it's a partial mu agonist and a kappa agonist. So it gave some um, uh, pain relief, but it also had some of those psychomimetics and the uncomfortable psych psychic effects that went along with it. Nubane is another um, uh, medication that was used for the treatment of more like chronic pain. We don't see it again used a lot. It's a mu antagonist, so it's actually blocking the mu opiate receptor and providing a little bit of analgesia via the kappa receptor. Stadol is another one we don't see a lot of used. Um, these were kind of all coming up in the 60s when we were getting really worried about people abusing their pain medications, so we felt more comfortable giving some of these and, you know, kind of substituting sorts of things to people. So we don't see them used too often. Buprenorphine, though, is one that we still are seeing used a lot. You may have heard of it in terms of Buprenex in your practice. It is a partial mu agonist, okay? So it binds to the opiate receptor just like morphine, but it's a partial agonist, which means... It's right, you're not, there's a ceiling effect to the amount of effect you're going to get, right? Okay, there's only so much... You're going to you can keep bumping up the dose of buprenorphine, but it's also a part. It's only a partial agonist. Okay, so you're not going to get a full opiate effect, which is nice with an opiate if you want to keep breathing, right? You can't get toxic on it. All right. So buprenorphine is being used um, not only for the management of pain, but I hope I'll get to it towards the end. It's also being used for the management of heroin and opiate addiction. Um, 
Suboxone is basically a combination of buprenorphine with a little bit of an antagonist thrown in. Okay. So if the patient puts the Suboxone under his tongue like he's supposed to, he will get the partial mu agonist effect. He'll get some pain relief, right? But if he crushes this pill up and puts it, melts it in, in a spoon with some water and sucks it into a needle and puts it into his vein, he's going to get the new antagonist effect. Okay. So it's a formulation of this drug that will work if the patient takes it the way he's supposed to, and if the patient tries to abuse it, put himself into opiate withdrawal. Mm -hmm. This is a partial mu agonist, mu antagonist. Okay. And they work differently depending on where they're being dissolved. If the medication is dissolved under the tongue like it's supposed to be, the only effect the patient gets is the partial mu agonist. Buprenex, they get some pain relief, they get some analgesia. If they take the formulation and crush it up and melt it down and put it into a needle and put it into their vein, the effect that becomes dominant is the antagonist effect so they can put themselves into withdrawal. So this is a formulation of a pain medication that's been de designed specifically to try to keep people from abusing it. Okay, And you're going to see more and more of that, and there are more and more agents coming out. I've got some slides coming up. We'll talk about it. But just this idea that it's good to put opiates out there, but we've got to be really careful about how they're used. So these are some of the opiates with mixed actions that will be you'll see used. Um, some of the other effects of new opioids, as I mentioned, it's not just pain, but respiratory depression is a big one. Okay, People will stop breathing. So uh, when you hear of somebody who's died of a respiratory arrest, one of the things that is a primary contributor to a respiratory arrest is an opioid, if not alcohol. Probably more often alcohol, but either way, respiratory depression. Meiosis, pinpoint, pinpoint pupils, nausea and vomiting. A lot of people, when they get their first dose of an opiate, don't, you know, one of the first things they feel is nauseous and sick to their stomach. It's not uncommon to see that with patients. Decreased GI motility, which is why you need to watch for constipation for people who are uh, taking opiates on a regular basis. Drowsiness, certainly. Antitussive, it's a very good um, way to get people to stop coughing. You know, and so we used to see it even still in child, children preparations that you'd get over the counter with, with coating in it, right, right. Mm -hmm. Also causes peripheral vasodilation, so people can be susceptible to chills and, and temperature changes. And there are also some evidence of neuroendocrine inhibition. So to people that are on opioids for a long period of time, women may lose their, their periods, men may lose um, sex drive, so there can be some changes to uh, Sex, uh, sex hormone uh, activity. Interestingly enough, many of these effects are less evident in patients with pain. Okay. People who are taking opiates due to an addictive disorder are more likely to develop these problems than are people with pain. Not entirely understood, but the, but the feeling is, is that the nervous system in pain is different than the nervous system not in pain. And you give a pained nervous system opiates, and you see less problem than you give a non-pained system opiates. Okay. Now, that's not to say that you don't need to watch for respiratory depression in the little old lady who's got cancer and you're giving her opiates. You know, you still need to watch for it. She has real pain. But there is some evidence that there may be something... Um, about being in the state of pain that, that protects people from developing some of the um, adverse events or toxic effects of opioids. One of the processes I study um, is this idea of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Um, we've gone through some of the, the effects that you typically hear about. 
Uh, one that's increasingly appreciated is that when you give opiates, in addition to providing analgesia, in addition to providing some pain relief, you also set into motion certain anti-analgesic or hyperalgesic processes. Remember, hyperalgesia was tuning up of the nervous system. Things were feeling more painful than they should. There's some pretty good evidence now that every time you give an opiate, you get some analgesia, but you're also inducing some hyperalgesia. That the two are kind of going along together. Okay. Um, it's been demonstrated to have neuroplastic, meaning the nerves, the, the cells change. We've already talked about that. The fact that things are now hyperalgesia, and that you've got some neuroplastic changes going on. There also appear to be some learned components to it. That even if you think you're getting, um, if, you, if, if you've been getting some hyperalgesia every time I give you an opiate, even if I give you a placebo, that hyperalgesia still persists. So there's changes to the brain that go along with it. And with this idea of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, it turns this, this idea of opioid tolerance a little bit on its head. Because if we think of opiate tolerance meaning you need more drug over time to get the same response, do you need more drug over time because you're tolerant? Or do you need more drug over time because you're hyperalgesic and everything feels worse? Does that make sense? That there could be a component of tolerance Pain meds not working as good as it used to. That's not because the system can't respond to the medication the same way it did before, but, but the patient also has some hyperalgesia that's going on as, as well. Now, you know, this gets into this whole question, well, then is it really good to give somebody an opiate? You know, if I'm inducing this hyperalgesia, I'm making things worse. The clinical evidence for the last 500 years is that yes, you know, that it's better to take care of somebody's pain. And if there is some hyperalgesia that occurs, it's not to the degree that it makes the patients, uh, it makes it so the patient can't um, experience analgesia. Yeah? So is the uh, hypoalgesia response because the opiates that you're taking is um, sort of numbing the pain and so your body's trying to up it? That's exactly the hypothesis. Did everybody hear the explanation? It was just offered, why does this happen? Is it because when you give an opiate, it tunes down your pain systems, right? You're not feeling pain very well, but your body, functionally, you still need to be able to feel pain. Just because you're on an opiate doesn't mean you don't need to feel pain if you step on a hot coal, right? That there still needs to be pain perception going on to keep you alive. And so this process of hyperalgesia is the nervous system's way of saying, I know we've got an opiate here, but I still got to stay awake. So that's one, of the the that's one of the theories about why it does exist. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And it, it, we can demonstrate it really, really well in rats, you know, but in terms of humans, it doesn't seem to affect the human pain experience um, to, to a clinically significant degree. But it's out there and something to, to keep in mind. Um, with the, when, in classical models of tolerance, that's what it is. The receptors are downregulated. Yeah, but in this model, it's more like the pain excitatory receptors are upregulated. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a conundrum. One of those conundrums. Uh, opiate toxicity. I've mentioned this. Is this is kind of the why we worry about opiates? Okay, they um, you see it frequently with clinical or accidental overdose, suicide attempts, opioid toxicity. It's the classic triad. Anyone who's worked in the emergency room knows the three T's, which is, no, it's, it's not the three T's. I forget what they call this one. It is a triad, though. The three T's are for DT's or something. Anyway, coma, meiosis, and depressed respiration. So if somebody ro rolls in the emergency room door and you can't wake them up, you know, they're 
decreased level of conscious. They've got pinpoint pupils, which you can see right away. You just open, you know, open up the eyelid. And they're barely breathing. You have an opiate toxicity. You have an opiate overdose. You have a heroin overdose or a morphine overdose. It's like the classic, classic symptom sign of it. It's very easily recognizable. Um, and the first thing, of course, is anybody rolls in the door looking like this is you want to maintain an airway, right? We're talking <coughs> ABCs, you know, getting, the bre getting breathing going, of course, immediately. But what we have, to, and, and again, in our toolbox, which is so wonderful in the ER, is naloxone. Anybody familiar with naloxone or Narcan? Opiate antagonist, okay? Strong, potent, quick opiate antagonist. So what happens if I give somebody who's coming in opiate toxic and give them a nice shot of Narcan. They wake right up. They wake right up. You've taken all the opiate that was keeping them from breathing and staying awake. You've blown it off the receptors and they wake right up. You feel like a magician. You feel like the most powerful, you know, person that's, you know, the most powerful nurse that's ever been. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If they're an opiate addict, they're going to be pretty mad at you, too. <laughs> right? Yeah, because you put them into withdrawal. Exactly. So they will. They'll be really pissed, but they'll be breathing. That's why the Yes, exactly. So as we were, it, it, Dr. just pulled out a minute ago, I was talking about this mixed agonist antagonist, mm -hmm. the, the suboxone, that if you take it the right way, you get the analgesia. Mm -hmm. You take it the wrong way, you're giving yourself a shot of Narcan. Okay, you're giving yourself a shot of this stuff, which, take, which plus, gets on the oversteps and throws it off. So yeah, so if they're, if they're an opiate addict, they'll be mad at you. But if they're a kid who got into the medicine cabinet, you know, you're, you know, God bless, because it really can, it feels like a miracle drug in that way. The only real problem with Narcan, and you've got to watch this, is that it, the, the, um, it offsets and it jumps kind of back on and off and on and on and off the receptor at variable rates. So for some people, if you don't watch them, the Narcan wears off and they stop breathing again. Okay, so you really got to kind of keep an eye on it. Just because you've just woken them up doesn't mean they're going to stay awake for the next rest of their life. You got to kind of keep an eye uh, and watch that balance. Yeah. More Narcan. Yeah. 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 So just kind of keep an eye on it. You really watch your level of consciousness and breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most commonly, though, um, when you see an opiate toxicity rolling in the door, there's usually more than one CNS depressant on board. And what, of course, is the other CNS depressant? Alcohol, right? The legal one. Always, 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 always. <laughs> always. <laughs> it's true. Uh, benzodiazepines, which are, are, which are pill, alcohol in the pill form, right? A benzodiazepine is basically a GABA agonist. Oh, did you do benzos? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's alcohol in a pill form, basically. Okay, so that, that's opiate toxicity, opiate withdrawal. You know, you've, you've all watched the movies about, oh my God, opiate withdrawal. You just, it's basically, basically a bad flu. But it's a miserable flu, and nobody likes to have the flu, so I'm not saying it's not a withdrawal syndrome, but you don't die from withdrawing from opiates. Okay, so it's not a lethal withdrawal syndrome. What's the only drug that you have, well, what's the big drug that the, we have the lethal withdrawal syndrome from? Alcohol, thank you. Yep. Okay, alcohol is a lethal withdrawal syndrome. Opiates don't. You can't die from it. The only cases where there have been um, individuals who have had, um, who have died related to opiate withdrawal is in neonates who were born opiate addicted. You've got to watch those babies sometimes. Okay. But that's the only, you can't die from an opiate withdrawal. It's basically a bad flu. It's the result of excessive noradrenergic activity in the locus ceruleus. So that part of the brain that opiates kind of kept quiet 
for years and years and years. Um, it's now suddenly um, flying off the handle. And so you'll see things like nausea and vomiting, muscle aches, runny nose, tearing, pupillary dilatation, sweating, erection, diarrhea, yawning. Um, people, people don't feel good. They feel it's a miserable flu. Um, and, and, but we would say, well, yeah, it's a flu, get over it. You know, you don't need to use, you don't need to go back and use again. But there's also a significant component of what's known as reward system withdrawal. With any drug of abuse that a patient's been addicted to, there's also a, psych a psychological type of withdrawal that occurs from the reward system um, that results in a dysphoric mood. People feel very depressed, really depressed. They really have depression. Um, and frequently experience significant craving for use. So although the physical withdrawal from opioids is really you know, not too, too bad, this is the piece that screws people up. It's that psychic withdrawal, the psychological withdrawal, the inability to feel good about anything unless the drug's around. Right? And this craving, it's difficult to control. Yeah? So what do you guys do you do medication Sometimes we do. People who um, are, are withdrawing from a medication or going through detox, it's not uncommon that they will develop a true clinical depression. You know, that you give them the Beck scale scores and they're right there with them. They'll meet diagnostic criteria. And so treating with an antidepressant is a very helpful thing to do. Definitely. It can take a couple weeks, but, you know, I mean, you've definitely got reason to give it. It can make a difference. Yeah. Um... Okay, so if, so those are kind of the, kind of the pharmacology. The objectives of giving opiate pharmaco pharmacotherapy for pain. There are certain principles that you need to think about. Basically, is what I'm getting to here now in terms of giving um, these medications for the treatment of pain. You want to select the right drug, dose, route, interval, and duration of treatment. Okay, and as we saw in some previous slides, you have lots of options open to you with respect to the opiates. And if you have somebody who's got a you know, an acute pain um, because of an outpatient surgical procedure they had, and within 72 hours you expect the pain to be pretty much gone, you may give a very small take-home supply of some fairly heavy, heavy duty, some stronger opiates for them to take over the, ne the next three days, you know, and that's about it. Whereas if you're dealing with someone who's got a chronic back pain, it's, in, in, you know, making it difficult for them to do their activities of daily living, it's going to be a different thing, versus a patient who's got uh, cancer pain. So that there are different ways to think about the use of opiates depending on the population that you're working with. Um, the, the principle is always to, tie, to titrate doses up to get the best effect. Okay? There's never a benefit from keeping the patient at 20 milligrams of codeine if it barely touches their pain. You know, why are we exposing them to an opiate if we're not going to really manage the pain? But you will run into clinicians and practitioners who want to really just dole it out. You know, we have this terrible fear about these bad drugs of opiates, and so um, it, it really makes no sense to give an opiate if you're not going to give an adequate amount to manage the pain. Okay. You want to prevent and manage any sort of breakthrough pain. Um, frequently, somebody with chronic pain or with cancer pain, their pain can be at a four all day long, and then suddenly, for some reason, in the middle of the afternoon, they suddenly get an eight that comes up. And those eights can make the four feel like a six, if you know what I'm saying. You can really, so that not only when you're treating patients who may have an ongoing pain condition, you may need to treat the ongoing chronic pain with an opiate, but you may need a little extra opiate here and there to get breakthrough pain. So the way that you're dosing can be very um, individualized based on the pain that they are, that they are using, or the pain that they are uh, uh, suffering. 
Use of coanalgesics is very uh, typical, and I've already mentioned the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. You know, anti-inflammatories can go a long way if there's an inflammatory component to pain, and even tumors cause inflammatory pain, right? Okay, so those can um, be helpful to use, and then also to minimize and manage any side effects. So if you've got somebody who's going to be on opiates for a long period of time, they may need to take a colace every day just to keep their bowel movements regular. You know, there may be um, there are side effects that go along with using opioids that. Um, Patients may need to um, minimize and manage in their daily life. Okay. Certain precautions or contraindications for the use of opioids. Again, they're extensively metabolized in the liver, so anyone with impaired hepatic function, uh, excreted, uh, many have a significant component of renal excretion, so you want to be careful if they've got impaired renal function. Impaired respiratory function is always an issue. Again, this is a respiratory depressant, so if you've got somebody with chronic COPD, you know, who's barely got the the, you know, the motivation, the central nervous system motivation to breathe, you want to be real careful about giving opioids to those people. Um, frequently with head injury, because we're concerned about decreased level of consciousness, we will tend to hold off on the opioids just so we can um, uh, determine um, if they're awake enough. Uh, reduce blood volume because there's peripheral vasodilation. People's blood pressure can drop very quickly if they've um, been given some opioids. And then there's always the question of addiction, and I'll spend a couple slides talking about this. Is this a pre, pre uh, is this a contra contraindication to giving opiates to somebody in pain if they are an addict or have a history of addiction? Have, have I already talked to this class in terms yeah. of substance abuse? Okay, right. so you know how I feel about it, right? <laughs> you already know the answer. Uh, so some of this may be a little bit of a review, but I want to just um, go take us back to think a little bit about what opiate addiction is and how it looks with respect to now we're looking at opiate addiction through the frame of pharmacology as opposed to looking at opiate addiction through the frame of substance abuse as we did in a previous lecture. So just to kind of switch glasses here a little bit. Um, opiate addiction is not the same thing as tolerance and physical dependence, right? Those are changes that occur to the cell. The cell doesn't care if you're an addict or not. Those cell changes are going to occur. So um, maybe I share with you the fact that for some of my studies, we bring in normal, healthy college kids who have no history of opiate addiction. I give them a shot of an opiate in the morning, look at their pain responses. In the afternoon, I come back and give them a shot of Narcan. They're usually not too happy with me, but I give them a shot of Narcan. And I can already put them into withdrawal. They've had one shot in their entire life of hydromorphone. And within six hours, I can put them into physical withdrawal. Okay, so that's an immediate physiologic change. Does this mean this kid's an opiate addict? No, it means his nervous system has responded to an opiate in the way nervous systems respond. So anybody, you know, whether they're the heroin addict on the street or the president of the United States, if they're taking opiates on a regular basis, they will develop tolerance and they will develop physical dependence. It's part and parcel of taking these drugs. It doesn't mean that they're an addict, right? Okay. It occurs in any individual who takes opiates. And as I mentioned previously, the degree to which some of these things occur in people who actually have pain is less clear. Pain may protect people from developing um, tolerance and physical dependence to the same degree that it does in patients who do not have pain. Opiate addiction also is not drug seeking. Okay, drug seeking is you know kind of clinicians get uncomfortable when the patient you know the, when the pill bottle is falling down the toilet or the dog the, you know the dog got the prescription or. Um, the patient in the hospital is watching the clock and they know that it's, they can have their next dose at 9.02 and so at, at 8.55 they're on the bell already, you know, drug seeking. Um, going maybe to other doctors, you know, they'll get some drug from, you know, their primary care physician but they also go to their dentist and get a little opiate there. They may run into the emergency room here and there to get some more opiate. 
they may borrow from their neighbor's medicine cabinet to get some more opiate, right? These are all drug-seeking kinds of behaviors. But that does not necessarily mean that someone's an opiate addict. Okay, we need to rule out the fact that perhaps they um, have either, perhaps either they're evidencing a therapeutic dependence or pseudo addiction. Therapeutic dependence, I probably described to you as um, somebody who's uh, very anxious, who wants to make sure they have enough medicine around, who's scared of running out, who's maybe been through withdrawal before, or maybe knows how bad their pain would be without it. And so they look like they're trying to get all that they can, and they may be hoarding it, and you may go visit their home, and they've got bottles all over the place, they look drug-seeking. They're actually just anxious patients who want to make sure they have enough around. And as long as they know they've got a good supply, you won't see the same t types of behaviors. And um, I always use the example, if there was a diabetic who was hoarding insulin, you know, making sure they had enough so they would never run out, we wouldn't think twice about it. But if you've got a pain patient who's hoarding their pain medication, and we look at it entirely differently, okay? So an untreated anxiety disorder is frequently something going on here. A pseudo-addiction, though, is, is more common. That's the time when, that's the kind of patient where they're not getting enough medication from you, so they are going to their dentist to get a little bit more, and they're not getting enough pain relief there, and so they are going to the emergency room once in a while when the breakthrough pain comes through. Um, so that their pain is undermanaged across multiple settings, and it looks like drug-seeking when actually they're just trying to get some relief. And so if clinician one was giving enough pain medication, that drug-seeking behavior would diminish. So drug-seeking is not the same thing as addiction. Can be, but not necessarily the same thing. There are other things you need to think about. The other thing to keep in mind is that <clears throat> opiate addiction is not an inevitable outcome of regular opiate use. Okay? You can be a pain patient and be taking opiates for 30 years you're not an addict unless you meet the diagnostic criteria for addiction. You're physically dependent, sure. You're tolerant, of course. You know, you've got that going on, but that doesn't mean that you are an addict. It's not an inevitable exposure. And patients worry about that. I'm gonna take codeine every day, I'm gonna be an addict. You're not necessarily gonna become an addict. When are you an addict? When you meet the DSM-IV criteria for addiction. Right? Okay, so someone's taking a nice healthy dose of codeine every day for the rest of their life, but they don't manifest any of these behavioral problems, they don't meet the diagnostic criteria for addiction, right? They're taking their pain medication appropriately. And we can just review these quickly. You know, there are the two kind of the less severe and the more severe diagnostic criteria for substance abuse. And I think we'll probably all remember that most everything on both of these lists is behavioral in nature. Right? They're not behaving the way that they're supposed to be. They're not fulfilling their role obligations. They're using when they're driving. They're using when they're taking care of kids. They're on their third DUI. Okay? Their wife has kicked them out. You know, they're not behaving the way that they can. And as you get into the, 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 the heavier category here, the stronger, more severe piece of it, they're having more and more difficulty controlling their use. So lots of behaviors. So if somebody's using their opiate for their pain and they've been using it for 20 years and you've never run into any of these problems, they're not an opiate addict. You have to get to this point. And this point is the person who may, on their first exposure to opiates, suddenly fall into it. It's not because they needed to be exposed to it for 20 years before it happened. You know, pe Certain people's brains are predisposed to when an opiate hits, finding it very rewarding. What gets confusing, though, is especially in, the, in, in you know, the era we're living in right now is that since 1995, there's been a huge increase in the use of prescription opioids 
in terms of our measures of drug use in our, in our country, you know, in terms of abuse, okay, that the abuse of prescription opioids um, has increased dramatically. Um, the data since, this is probably the most dramatic uh, curve, the data since it's evened off a little bit, but still, um, when we look at the most, the first most commonly abused drug in this country, illicit. What was the first most commonly illicit abused drug in this country? Do you remember? Marijuana. What was the second? Nope. Second was narcotic analgesics. Okay. Prescription opioids. The pharmacotherapeutics, if you look back at those slides. So, yes. So this is the second most commonly abused drugs in our country. Our prescribed drugs. Prescribed narcotics. Prescribed opiates. I'm using the word narcotic because the government uses the word narcotic. But these are opiate analgesics. So they are the most secondly, second commonly abused drug in our country, which makes it tricky when you're treating pain. Yeah? I was just going to say, I've been dealing with an opioid addiction in the family since I was born. And she, um, her, her supplier was jailed. He's, he's now in prison. Um, and she switched drugs. So I don't know that it's necessarily about being addicted to opioids or just something, a substance. I agree with you entirely. So what you're saying is that the supply of opiates for this individual is no longer available, so uh, she or he has switched their drug of abuse to yes. maybe methamphetamine or to... That's exactly it. What a surprise. <laughs> it's Adderall. Yeah, no, so it's, it's not uncommon. No, addiction, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a disease that's a, a disease of behavior. It doesn't matter which drug you're doing, okay? You know, we can all start to get arguments about Tiger Woods and is that an addiction and yeah, and it's all back and forth there. But with these drugs of abuse, it's, it's pretty clear that if there's a certain drug that people cannot use, then they will go to other ones. And what happened during Prohibition? You know, we couldn't get a hold of alcohol, you know, so all, use of a lot of other types of drugs increased. Right? Yeah. So, um, so you're absolutely right. It's a, addiction is a disease. It generalizes across substances. But at certain points in history, certain substances are hot. And right now, these are hot. In the 1980s, cocaine was hot. Okay. Um, in the 1920s, marijuana was even hotter than it is now. So there have been, you know, kind of changes over time too, as, as with respect to. But the fact that right now, what we're sitting in is a time period when this is the most second most commonly abused drug in this country, that it makes treating people's pain even more tricky. If you know what I'm saying, you know, these. This is not heroin that's being abused. This is Vicodins. You know, these are these are prescribed, manufactured medications. Yeah. So as long as if I did Vicodin or cocaine every day, but as long as I stayed in school and got good grades, then I'm not an addict, basically. Basically, yes. Did you all hear that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were doing cocaine every day. Yeah. As long if, if there are people who drink every day, right? And as long and as, as, long as they fulfill their now they still go through withdrawal if you suddenly took them off the if you suddenly took away their three martini a day lunch or whatever it is and put them in the hospital. But is, but no, addiction is a disease of behavior and that's how you know it's there. So if I'm so, drunk all the time, as long as I'm still in the grades but I'm drunk all the time, then I'm not an addict. I would say that you couldn't be drunk all the time and not meet some of those criteria. So so if you're drunk all the time like six hours a day, but as long as I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that's when that's when it shifts. So for some people it may be 
three hours a day. For some people, it may be 12 hours a day. That's where the shift comes in. That's why you can't just count number of drinks and say alcoholic, not alcoholic. So it's not the amount. It's the behavior. But then what is that? He would be He's not. Is he performing successfully? Is he performing in a way that is not hazardous situation? There was a big paper in Science not too long ago about people who are writing grants to the NIH and they're using Adderall to stay Yeah, Adderall every day. Well, we're getting into some slippery slopes, aren't we? You know, so. You know, where does it earn? But these, this is what we're living with right now. And this is, these are the, di and I, I buy into these. I mean, I think that people can control their, people have been doing drugs and alcohol since the beginning. You know, it's part of kind of who we are. And so regular recreational use is functional in society in a lot of ways. But when it starts to cross over here, when it starts to interfere with life, and you start having a hard time controlling it, you know, you want to stop, but you can't. You know you should be getting your kids to school, but you can't get out of bed to, to pack a lunch. You know, that's when it starts to get. So, let's, I don't know how much more do I have. Um, so, in, uh, in kind of doing this kind of messy, trying to figure out if someone is addicted when they're on opiates and they have pain, this is a consensus statement that was put out by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and the American Pain Society um, to try and help us figure out, to tease out. Um, looks like I'm missing a slide or two here. Uh, how we know that someone is actually addicted when they're taking their pain medication. And so again, you're looking for behaviors. You know, it's not necessarily how many times they call into the doctor, but are they, you know, having trouble driving because of their use? You know, are they not able to get out of bed? Are they unable to stop using? Is they have preoccupation with obtaining the opioids despite the fact that they, have, that they are functional with other, um, uh, other outcome measures of pain? Okay. And this, did, I, did you all see this? Just to kind of have a decision tree out somebody. You know, if you think they're drug seeking, if you give them more opiates and they do better, they're not an addict, right? If you give them more opiates and they don't do better, they could be an addict. Okay. If they're doing better on the opiates, then they can't be an addict, right? They're not going to meet those diagnostic criteria. If they're not doing well, they could have a non-opiate responsive kind of pain. And a lot of neuropathic pains aren't that responsive to opiates. They do much better to a tricyclic, and you wouldn't think so. You know, you think, I'll oh, give this big dose of opiates, they're going to feel better. Eh. But you give them a nice tricyclic antidepressant, and suddenly they're working better. So um, the hyperalgesia in some cases, often a psychiatric illness that isn't treated. Opiates aren't going to help, and then addictive disease. Yeah. Pseudoaddiction, so that's that phenomenon when somebody looks drug seeking, but it's only because they're not getting enough medication. So they're going to their clinician, and they're going to their dentist, and they're going to the emergency room. They look addicted, but it's only because they're not getting what they need. And if, and if their clinician would give them enough, they'd stop that behavior. In terms of risk factors for people who have a history of addiction and you want to put on pain medication, it's not a contraindication, but these are some of the things that will give you a sense that you have to watch these patients a little bit more carefully, right? Okay. If there's no family support, and these have been demonstrated in studies, that if patients don't have family, good family support, 
continued involvement in some sort of addiction treatment. And in this study, it was conceptualized as 12-step treatment. But if they had a recent history of sub polysubstance abuse, not just alcohol abuse alone, if they had a previous history of chronic opioid therapy, or if they had a previous failure in improvement of their pain symptoms, these are all kind of risk factors or indicators in patients who had a history of addiction, how they were going to do on their pain medication. Okay? And if you, without these things, if you didn't have good family support, if you weren't still involved in your addiction treatment, because remember, addiction is a chronic disease and needs lifelong treatment, right? Um, more severe addiction, previous history of using opiates for the treatment of pain, and a failure in their own pain symptoms, these are all indicators that patients developed a problem with their pain medication. <clears throat> okay. Extremely important when you're giving opiates to somebody who has a history of, or a suspected history or a history of addiction, or even if they don't have a history of addiction, actually. Um, anytime you give opiates, you want to always document why the opioids were prescribed. Um, doc document if there's been a reduction in the pain. You know, you can't justify continuing to give somebody opioids if their pain isn't coming down or if their pain is getting worse. You want to document that it's worked. Has it worked in terms of any functional improvement? Can they now get out of bed? Are they now deep breathing in, you know, the way that you need them to do? Um, if any side effects are there, you want to document them. And in the case of a patient where there's concern about whether or not they're abusing their medication, it's always good just to document. Patient is using medication appropriately. You know, patient is using medication as prescribed. Make sure that that's documented there. If it's not written down, it didn't happen. And your record will testify in public. Not what patients you have, but what clinician they have. So really what happens in, in the court uh, comes down to... Um, what, what, how good the clinician was and what you've written down. Okay. The treatment of addictive disease. I'll spend a few seconds here talking about pharmacotherapies for addictive disease. Um, there are no uh, magic bullets. I'm sure I talked about this, that the disease of addiction cannot be treated simply with a drug, but some of the drugs that we use are opioids. Okay. There are substitution agents for the treatment of opiate addiction, and those substitution agents are methadone, full opiate agonist, and if we went back to that list of all the different opioids, you would see that it's a potent opioid and that it's a long-lasting opioid. People don't need to take it on a regular basis for the treatment of, of, of pain. And for a heroin addict, they need to come in only once a day in the morning to get a dose of methadone, and then they can go out and do the rest of their day. So it's a long-acting opioid, full new opiate agonist. And then buprenorphine, that partial opiate agonist. Okay, patients can also receive this as a substitution medication. Sits on the opiate receptor, enables them to, to function and do the things they need to, um, but without the full opiate ag agonist effects. And there is some pretty good evidence, and I think I'll get to this on the slide if I have a minute, that the buprenorphine, the partial agonist, tends to be better for the younger addict or maybe the addict who's in treatment for the first time, methadone for patients who are more, uh, uh, less responsive to treatment. There's also an uh, opiate antagonist out there called naltrexone. You may have heard of that. Um, it's basically a long-acting form of Narcan, that opiate antagonist. So you give an opiate antagonist, it blocks the opiate receptors. You give them naltrexone, it blocks their opiate receptors for three days. Okay. So if they go out and try and shoot up, they're not going to get much of an effect. Now if they break their leg, will their endogenous opiates work? Question. We don't know. But, so, the problem with this is that, what's the problem with this? They have, to, they have to take it themselves. They have to keep coming back and taking the medication. Okay, so if they stop coming, you're kind of stuck. They have to be willing to keep taking it. Um, 
and I think someone else has said, if they go out and use and do get high, then when you give them the naltrexone again, they'll go into withdrawal. But yeah, this one's, it's hard to get people, they stop coming back. Unless they're a doctor or a nurse in danger of losing their license, and then they come back. Then there are some other agents that are used, um, uh, like uh, antabuse, and that's suboxone, which can put people into withdrawal, which are designed to kind of be aversive if people were to use. And the underlying treatment of psychiatric disease is critical. I think I'll stop here. Um, let me just, one last slide, just this buprenorphine slide, just because it's new and it's important and I want to make sure everybody's up on it. This is the, the um, medication I mentioned a, min mentioned a minute ago, which is a good opiate substitution therapy for people who are addicted to opioids and that it's used more for now the younger opiate addict um, uh, with a smaller habit, so to speak. Okay, it's a partial opiate agonist, has a ceiling effect, people can't overdose on it. You only have to give it three times a week, so compliant patients come into the doctor's office and get a dose and they don't have to come back as frequently. Excellent safety profile because you can't overdose on it. Okay? And it has a minimal withdrawal syndrome for it. So it looks to be really kind of the, the substitution opioid on the market that um, is really you know, kind of the new wave of treating opioid addiction, moving away from methadone, moving away from some of the stigma associated with methadone and methadone clinics. And the other really cool thing about it is that it can be given out in a private physician's office. You don't have to go to a methadone clinic and stand in the parking lot and stand in line to get your dose. You can go in and see your doctor three times a week and um, in a, in a, with certain doctors. They have to be certified. Okay. All right. Thank you for your attention. What happens when I put migraine first? I can send you the file. Ah, uh, it's all right.